Hello and welcome to My Last Order podcast, the podcast where we get guests to pick their favourite place, drink, snack and jukebox song to create their perfect last order. In today's episode, we're talking to Ellie Flynn, who's an investigative journalist working for the likes of Vice, BBC, covering loads of topics that affect young people today. In today's episode, we will be talking about these documentaries some which may upset some listeners so just a bit of a warning and we will be discussing mental health so just giving you a bit of a warning we will provide some links after for contacts to reach out to just in case you get a bit upset listening to this podcast but we'll also be talking about how important it is to get these stories out there so that young people and older people know that these things exist in our society so without further ado Let's get started with episode two of My Last Order podcast. First of all, bit of a disclaimer doing this socially distanced still so if my audio doesn't sound that brill that's why because we are still in some weird situation with lockdown especially in Manchester so we are definitely doing this socially distant so first of all how have you been doing these past few months yeah I've been okay um it's been weird hasn't it it's just been so weird I think I'm sort of getting to the end of my tether in terms of the boredom that's come from the sort of all the waiting it just feels like everything's taking so long to happen and I'm, I'm you know I'm still I had a load of tv stuff that I was meant to be working on and we're still working on lots of ideas and I'm doing a bit more writing and I've got kind of various projects on the go but I'm sort of ready for things to kind of get back to normal now I just want to start filming again um, and get get stuck into everything so yeah getting pretty bored of coronavirus to be honest how are you I'm the same I mean because first of all I thought it would be a good thing like because I have to work such random hours that working from home actually sort of worked for me because I wasn't paying to go on public transport I could just after finishing a night shift go straight to bed but now I'm just a bit fed up because I had loads of things planned. It was summer, so obviously like festival season, going on holiday, and now everything's out the window. I know that there's loads of like virtual events going on, but it's not the same. How have you found this current situation as a creative? Has it been a chance for you to become more creative in things like you mentioned writing, but you've not been able to go out and do like physical things like filming? Yeah, I mean... It has in a way. I It's made me, you know, really get my development head on and think about ideas that, you know, we could start working on and, um, you know, really investing a lot of time in thinking about things that I would like to investigate, documentaries that I would like to make and trying to work those up um, to pitch them to, to, you know, the BBC or whoever. So it's been good in a sense, but it's also, it's, been pretty difficult because I mean everyone's in the same boat now you know there's been a massive massive pause on loads of productions and you know some things are being made but it's not as much as it usually would be and you know you have to think about the logistics of how you make things to ensure that they're socially distanced and so in a way it's kind of easier to look to the future and think about how we can make things as everything starts to relax and you know as things start to get safer and and coming out of lockdown um So that's kind of where I've been at at the moment. I'm hoping to get started again with filming in October is the the latest date that I've got now. And I've got a programme coming out next month as well. So, you know, doing a bit of press and stuff around that, which is exciting. But I think it's also, yeah, made me think about other things I can do. So, you know, I've been pitching some writing investigations for newspapers. I've been sort of talking about wanting to write a book for um a long time now and you kind of have no more excuses when you've literally got sort of months of work and um and not very much else to do so I'm not I'm not hugely far along in the process of that but it's something that I've been thinking about um and yeah trying trying to think about different ways that I can keep myself busy and, and keep investigating things and you know keep being creative and now like moving away from the current situation and going back to 
when it all started for you. What was it that made you want to work in like this industry, like the journalism industry? So I think I always wanted to be a journalist from a really young age. Um, and before I even really knew what it was, um, you know, when I was when I was quite young, I always liked writing and I used to make up stories. Um, and I loved reading um, and English was my favourite subject at school. Um, and I was also always really, really inquisitive, really, really nosy. Um, I would ask about a million questions. And I think someone just said to me once, like, oh, you, you make a good journalist when you're older. Um, and I didn't really know what that was. And, you know, I found out that just meant writing things that go into newspapers. And so it was kind of an industry that I, I didn't know anyone that worked in um, journalism, didn't know anything about it. But it was just this industry that I was always kind of interested in. And it was something that I just thought, yeah, OK, I'd like to do that. And then it was something that I pursued, uh, you know, as I as I got older and, you know, with the subjects that I studied at school and, you know, I worked when I went to university, I did a student newspaper and then I did a journalism course when I when I left uni. Um, so I was always kind of interested in journalism, but then the more that I started to actually look into journalism as, a, as an industry, I realised there were so many different elements of it and that, you know, that you could be a beauty writer or you could be a news writer or you know you could go into radio or tv and I think for me investigations was just where I seemed to be the most interested and that was the kind of area of journalism that I seemed to be most drawn to and initially I, I was thinking about doing it um, and I was sort of writing and doing it more for print journalism and then the tv thing kind of happened really by a lot of chance um, further down the line. And you mentioned, like, you said you were a bit nosy and you liked writing. Do you remember the moment when you knew that investigative journalism was the thing you wanted to go into? Like, you mentioned, obviously, journalism's such a massive industry and you can be, like, even if you wanted to be a culture writer, there's so many different things involved in that. But, like, investigative journalism involves, like, a lot of hard work. Like, I remember... I think it must have been like a media GCSE topic where we had to investigate a story and you sort of realise that like investigative journalism, it can take sometimes years for one story to finally be put out. So what was it about that side of the industry that made you want to go into it? You know, it's, it's, really, it's really hard because I'm thinking back and I'm thinking, what was it? I just think I was always interested in, in getting under the surface of things. And I think that, you know, I'd, I'd find out about a subject or it'd be a news story um, that, you'd, that you'd read about. And I'd be like, that's interesting, but I want to know more. I want to know why that's happening. Um, and I want to get to the root cause of, you know, what's the real story here? Um, and I think that was sort of where... I initially found interest in investigations and um, I mean, like I said, when I left university, I did this journalism course and that's kind of where I first started to really understand that there were so many different areas of journalism and, um, you know, so many different skills involved in each of those different um, aspects of of the industry. And um, I had to do this final project and and I was looking into um, this fight club that I'd heard about, which was... Um, some being run by some guys in London where they were speaking to people who had um, and working with people who had just recently been released from prison. Um, so they, one of the guys that was running it had a building company, so he would give them sort of a day's work labouring um, on this on this building uh, site that he worked on. And then he would train them as well in um, to become boxers or to sort of be able to box. And he said that so much of kind of rehabilitation is about giving people opportunities and giving people um something to do. And you know, there's there's a huge societal impact that, that comes with leaving prison um, that he was trying to work on. And that that was kind of the first investigation that I'd done. Um, and it was just, you know, for, for my final project when I was doing this course. But I was just really, really interested in how this one story um has so many different layers and there's so many different aspects to it um and I think that that was yeah why why I first really started wanting to get into investigations you focus on stories that mainly affect young people like you've done things on Botox pyramid schemes why do you think it's important to get these stories out there not just so that older audiences see it but a part of younger people seeing you do these stories and think someone's finally talking about something that relates to me yeah I think it's that really I think it's 
it's so important that young people feel like they're the issues that affect them and you know the things that that they're coming across day to day are reflected in journalism you know particularly on tv and i think that documentaries are an amazing format for that because i think that it's a way that you can really really engage a young audience and you can um tell a story in in a quite a powerful way um and i think that you know more and more there are channels like bbc3 which are doing you know, a really amazing job of trying to reach those younger viewers and trying to say to them, you know, like we understand what the issues are that impact you and, and it's going to be a priority for us to tell those stories. And so for me, I think it was just, you know, I when I, I was 24 when I, when I made the first documentary, Rent for Sex, and so for me, it was like, I, this is just an issue that I am interested in that could happen to me very realistically, you know, it could be me at the other end of um, these meetings and it could be people I know. And so it, it was a natural starting point for me to try and look into those issues because they were the issues that affected me and people my age. Um, so yeah, I think that's why I've kind of focused on, on that demographic. And especially like the documentary side, like putting it onto BBC three, because I bet a lot of, people think that young people are interested in quick news and social media because everything's so instant that I think people sort of underestimate how how much young people can put time into things to watch something and think god this is like my life that could be me yeah for sure I think that you you know you've still got to try and engage people quickly and you've got to you know my attention span um is is not the uh, <laughs> is not the longest like I think that if I know if I'm going to be interested in something from you know pretty early on and I think that's the same for lots of people um my age and younger and so I think that it's really important that you make something that's engaging that's going to draw an audience in but then you know also give give people credit that they will continue watching it if it's something that they find interesting and if, if it's you know done in an engaging way which I think that you know hopefully my documentaries do but I know that a lot of the programs that I watch on, on channels like BBC3 I find do that effectively. Yeah definitely. You've worked for a range of broadcasters and newspapers. Like you worked for Vice, where you wrote about your experiences of having a fake account made about you, which when I was reading that, my heart sunk because you just think, God, what if someone's done that about me? And, you know, I'll never know. Like, how did you find reporting on something that was so close to you, but also, you know, a lot of people it happens to loads of people and some people laugh it off but for some people it can be really like quite soul destroying thinking that you know someone set up this fake account pretending to be you I think for us the reason that we never really were too worried about it I suppose I mean and actually that I don't know if that's fair because I know some of my friends were definitely more concerned about it um than others and these fake accounts were centered around um one of my good school friends so she was very much the focus of it and I think probably it was a lot scarier for her than it was for the rest of us um but I think the main reason that we sort of had this strange acceptance of it almost was that it started when we were so young I think we were 14 maybe um when the first fake accounts um came up and I mean it was it was so long ago and we were so young that I think the first accounts were on MySpace or maybe even Bebo I don't know this is I'm talking we were we were really really young um and then you know as as Facebook became more popular it migrated onto that and then Twitter Instagram um Snapchat all they had all of the kind of range of social media accounts that that we had from the age of kind of 13 14 up to 21 22 um and so I think it, it became very normalised for us. And it was just this weird thing that happened. And we knew, you know, because people would sort of regularly message us and say, oh, um, have you seen this? There's this fake account of you. Someone's, you know, using using your photos to catfish people. Um, and, we, you know, we tried speaking to teachers when we were at school. We tried speaking to, like, the police about it. But there was just this kind of sense that well, there's not really anything we can do um you know I mean I remember one of the police officers saying to us just don't you know take your photos off social media then which is just that that was not a a helpful suggestion for a group of 14 year old girls you know in any stretch it's like okay well obviously we're not going to do that so thanks for the help and I think that was all you know that that's part of the the reason that I think it's important to try and tell the stories that that we do tell um 
and the investigations we do because I think that there's often um, a sort of sense that the, the issues that affect young people are trivial or you know that maybe don't matter um, but actually like things like that are a big deal and you know it, it was quite scary and we were lucky that you know things didn't go too badly but they they could have done um and I think that there was this kind of sense that like it wasn't that big a deal because we were so young um and I think that you know it's important to try and to try and take these things seriously and try and expose these issues that that affect people yeah definitely and in like a serious way which is what your documentaries do like when you started with BBC Three and you did your like Ellie Undercover where you looked at Rent for Sex, Botox and Pyramid Schemes, those three topics are things that are very relatable to young people. But if they spoke to even like the parents then, they probably wouldn't, not that they wouldn't take them seriously, but they just wouldn't get it. And these those three topics, I imagine they put you in quite like dangerous situations what was it like recording those moments for those documentaries that you know whilst you're recording it they'll go out on air and it will really shock people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I mean going undercover um is a an incredibly nerve-wracking experience. Um anytime you do it. And I think more more because you're just so worried that someone's gonna notice that you're undercover um or you're gonna somehow, you know, reveal yourself. Um and you know when you when you're filming and you sort of have those moments where you know that someone said something that is illegal or that is is the kind of information that you were looking for, um, it's 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 kind of hard to explain. It's incredibly tense um, and it it can be quite terrifying because you know you've got to end the meeting and you've got to act natural and and you've got to kind of continue um, being a journalist and and doing the job that you're there to do. Um, and, and also trying to sort of come across in um, as normal and natural a way as possible. Um, but it's it's also, there's a sense of relief when, when you get the information that you've gone to get. Um, because, you know, it is, um, it's an invasion of privacy going undercover and filming someone. And, and we don't do it lightly. It's something that, you know, that you would only do if that's the only, if you, if you have reason to believe that there is, either illegal activity or something that's you know extremely immoral going on and um going undercover is the only way that you're possibly gonna get that information um so you know when when you go and you have the meetings and these people um say the things that you are expecting them to say from the research you've done there is a real sense of relief and you think okay I've done my job um and you know we've done what we came here to do and there's you know there's a sense that it's important that you then share that with the public um so yeah it's this kind of weird mix of emotions and as well as stories that affect young people in this country you've gone overseas to report on stories like the child brides in america which was like a, a massive documentary and it's something that before that documentary was put out i didn't know was a thing um, I imagine a lot of people didn't know that that existed in America. How did you come across that story in the first place? So the Child Brides documentary was an idea that was brought to me by a production company um, who'd been looking into it. And I think they found a couple of news articles by um, news sources in America that had commented. They looked particularly at Missouri, which was one of the states where... Um, there were a lot of cases of underage girls getting married. Um, and that was where Heather, who was one of the girls we filmed with in the programme, um, had been married. Her dad had driven her from her home state to Missouri in order to get married because the laws were, um, they allowed girls to get married a lot younger there. Um, and so it's just kind of finding these news articles or these pieces of information um, and then looking into it and trying to dig a bit deeper and see, you know, what that can tell you about an issue as a whole and expanding on it from, you know, maybe one one article or from a few different reports that you've seen and trying to say, okay, so I can find this information, but is it bigger than that? And how much is this actually happening? And how many cases of this are there? Um, and that's what we tried to do with the Child Brides documentary. And do you, do you ever struggle to like take yourself away from the story and sort of keep yourself as unbiased as you could because things that involve children or child brides, some people would struggle to not 
get their opinion out because it's something that a lot of people are passionate about and you know people try to to put a stop to but did you ever struggle to sort of think I need to sort of keep this as unbiased as I can yeah for sure and that I mean that's something that I'm still working on um and something that I've definitely um had to try hard to um to not do throughout my career um you know everyone has an opinion on things and everyone there are things that you're going to be impacted by but your job as a journalist is to try and keep your own opinion and your own emotions out of it as much as possible because your job is there to to try and tell the story from someone else's point of view and trying to look into the facts as well and try and you know present all areas of a, of an issue or of a story um in order to let other people make up their own minds um but that is so much easier said than done and yeah there's definitely some cases that um and some of the people that I meet that stick with me more um where it's a lot harder to to put my own personal feelings uh, to the side and do the job that I'm there to do yeah it's definitely like it's a skill in itself because there's sometimes where you watch a documentary just as a viewer and you have you watch it having one opinion and it's so hard to distance yourself so that is really like a, an amazing skill that you've got. <laughs> I mean, I'm still working on it. I don't know if I've completely nailed it yet. Sometimes, sometimes I, uh, I, yeah, I have to sort of have a word with myself and say, okay, what are the facts? <laughs> yeah, we don't need to know your opinion. What are you here to do? Um, so yeah, it's, it's something that I think hopefully, hopefully I'll manage to, to fully nail at some point. I want to chat about the Nudes for Sale documentary because that is something that is a really important documentary for young people because it's something that is very real and very current especially during the current situation where people are reporting that a lot of these websites like OnlyFans have seen like an influx of people joining the sites because they're out of work it's a easier way to make money and sadly Using like the phrase nudes, people often smirk at or they laugh at, but don't understand that the porn industry and these explicit photos is a million pound business. Like, what made you want to investigate that topic, those businesses, and look at why people are doing it? I just think it's it's fascinating. It's it OnlyFans and you know selling nudes online and and it's a, been a real kind of revolution of um the sex industry and it's it's really changing the way that people think about what is sex work um and it, it's making it you know rightly or wrongly much more accessible um and i think a lot more popular um and people see it in a very different way to the way they do traditional sex work um so I just think it felt like a very current investigation and it felt like something that people were starting to become more aware of and starting to, you know, hear more about and know more about, but it hadn't really been looked into um, in terms of kind of, but what does this mean? And uh, how does the industry work? And, you know, as we found in the film, what kind of impact is it having on young, particularly underage people who are looking up to these men and women who are starting a accounts and selling their nudes for huge amounts of money um and so it just felt for me like a very very important and topical investigation I think that was what drew me in yeah and it also educated people as to both sides of the story it dealt with the fact that underage people are using these sites but also the fact that adults are using the sites and they find the positive sides of doing it like him they enjoy doing it. It's a it is a job for them. Why was it important for you to show both sides, not just oh, you know, sometimes we we'll, we we'll might see a documentary or a news article where it's a, a person makes thousands of pounds a, a day from doing this sort of job, but it's also important to reflect that you know a lot of underage people are using these sites and aren't aware of you know the the negative side of it. I think. Well, I think for me. It, it was important to reflect the genuine opinions and, and experiences of the people who are selling nudes or who are working on sites like OnlyFans because I think that often there's a tendency to sort of 
put your own opinion or your own thoughts on an industry like well, particularly the sex industry on the people who work in it and I think that you know there's there's lots of examples of of programs or of like um you know articles where people will suggest that they know how someone who works in the sex industry thinks um and I really didn't want to do that because you know I don't know what it's like to to sell nudes on Instagram and I don't know whether you do it because you have no other option or whether you do it because you want to earn money or whether you do it because you enjoy it and because I didn't know why people do it that was the starting point for my investigation I wanted to genuinely find that out and so I think that gave me you know a huge range of of opinions within the film because because the fact is that no two people are going to do it for the same reasons it's going to be a huge um a huge range of reasons as to why someone would want to would want to start up an OnlyFans account. And, and I think that it was just important to me that we reflected that um, and that we kind of looked into the why and then the experiences once people had done it in, a, in as honest and an open a way as possible. Um, and I think with that came, came the positives and the negatives and came hopefully a balanced view of, of the industry itself. And why do you think it was important, not just this story but others that you've done that it came from someone who is a similar age to the people who are doing these things I think I guess for me it just in a way it sort of makes it it makes my job easier because you know I I understand these people you know they're my age you know they're we have common interests we have a lot of like I think it's just easy to then get on with someone um and to have a chat with them and I think that you know while obviously a huge part of my job is investigating and probing and and looking into things in detail another huge part of it is just being able to get on with people and it's it's making them feel comfortable and it's you know being able to have a conversation that feels natural and feels engaging um and I think that you know for, for the people who it's a huge huge ask to get someone to go on camera and tell these incredibly personal stories um and you know to share some some incredibly intimate details about their lives and about the things they do and about the things that happen to them. I think for me, it's given me a kind of personal connection to the stories that I investigate because a lot of them are issues that affect young women. So it's something that I just immediately can relate to. Yeah, and that's the brilliant thing about investigative journalism is that you know I definitely I don't know if you grew up as well but watching Louis Theroux and seeing him go and meet people who he won't relate to, but you can sort of see that he was being educated by listening to these stories of these people, whereas on the other hand, you've got the investigative journalism that you do where it is things that relate to you. So that's the brilliant thing about journalism is that, you know, you get to see on screen how these relationships form because you've got people who can completely relate to what's going on. And then on the other hand, people who don't, but they're learning about these stories and being educated themselves. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Louis Theroux is the master. Like he's, you know, obviously incredibly, incredibly talented um, at interviewing and his documentaries, like you say, I grew up watching. Um, And I think that it is, yeah, it's it's a quite different um, style, I suppose, he's just he's just very very good (laughs) like could I could I uh could I do those interviews in that same way I'm not sure I could but I think that it's important that there's you know that everyone comes into this industry for different reasons and you know there's so many different journalists and and everyone has their own kind of style and everyone has um you know their, their own way of doing things um and I suppose for me the way that the way that I conduct my interviews and the way that I um you know, make my documentaries is that I always try and find some sort of common ground, which actually you can, you can find with everyone, even if they're older than me, or even if they live in a different country, or, you know, even if we've got no shared life experiences, there's often, there's often something that you can find that you can chat about. And, and that is a, a common interest between um, the two of you. Um, and so that, that's the way that I do things. Um, and it is, yeah, I suppose it is different, but um that's that's what's great about TV. There's a huge, huge different range of uh, of things to be able to watch too, and you know maybe one day I'll uh, I'll manage to 
now my interviewing skills quite as well as Louis Theroux, but I've got a little while to, uh, <laughs> to still work on it. Your most recent documentary, which I just want to mention like a bit of a trigger warning, we will be talking about mental health and suicide. So if you are listening, please do fast forward a few minutes if you don't want to listen to this part. But it was failed by the NHS, which focused on the suicide of a young woman. And I think it was a really important watch because sadly, I know people like this young woman. We know people like this young woman who fall through the cracks of the mental health system. They aren't given the support they need. And it's something that people feel passionate about to raise awareness how did you find reporting on that story and at the same time trying to raise this awareness that this young woman wasn't the only person that this sort of thing has happened to? It's happening across the UK. Yeah, and that was that was an incredibly difficult um story to report on. It was it was heartbreaking. Um and yeah, it was it was it was one of the you know you mentioned earlier that there's sort of those those stories or those interviews that really stick with you that it's kind of hard to not take home and um, Callie's story was was one of those. Um, I think again, it's just important to sort of put your own personal feelings and your own emotions to the side and to think that this isn't you know this isn't about me. Um, this is this was a tragedy that could have been prevented, and my job is to shine a light on that so that it doesn't happen again hopefully so that more people will learn from it and and um you know will hopefully be better protected by the services in the future um but yeah that was that was a really really heartbreaking story and a difficult one to report on for sure how do you separate yourself from these sort of stories and look after like your own mental well-being because a lot of the stories that you report on as like harrowing as they are and upsetting to you know to know that these things exist but at the same time they need to be spoken about because otherwise things wouldn't change how how do you manage to separate yourself from these stories? Oh, I mean, I'm not particularly good at it, to be honest. Um, it's uh, whenever I am working on a, a documentary, I become incredibly invested in the story that I'm working on. Um, and also, I mean, it's, it's intense. The filming schedules are intense. It's a lot of traveling, um, long days, um, you know, constant kind of conversations with the team. Um, and, you know, a huge amount of research to do. And I also, you know, I work, behind the scenes um in production on all the films I work on as well as as reporting um on the on them in front of camera so I do become really really invested in everything that I work on um and yeah I mean I'm, I've not to be honest quite nailed the the sort of homework balance just yet um and sometimes I do take it home with me you know sometimes you can't quite switch off and you and you are thinking about it um but I hope that in a way that that adds something to the piece of journalism when it goes out because you know it is genuine and it's you know not just me I think it's the same for for people who work on these films across the board um you know I've worked with some incredible directors and producers um who work unbelievably hard um at these on these films and you know I think sometimes it's kind of me who who uh we'll get a lot of the credit but actually you know you you work with a team who puts in so much work and um is actually the real driving force behind these films um and I think that you do become very invested in them collectively um I suppose just as much as you can trying to sort of take some time um away from your phone or uh trying to you know spend time with friends um trying to you know when you have got time off um just just take a bit of a break from it but often these stories are um are quite all-consuming and and that's just something that kind of comes with it uh, for the period of time that you are filming yeah and the very real stories as well so you know if it wasn't for you they probably wouldn't be reported on or they wouldn't be reported on in the same way so I suppose in a way it's I don't want to use the word rewarding but it's sort of good to see that these stories are getting out there like I know people want to focus on positive stories and they want to report on positive things but a lot of stories that affect young people they aren't 
positive things and you know it's not all rainbows and everything like that it is like a really hard time for young people especially now like yeah for sure I think that it is I suppose I suppose it's kind of like a sense of um almost relief when the story goes out because when you have so many concerns throughout the throughout the process and you think oh god I mean I'm barking up the wrong tree are we gonna are we gonna make this work are we gonna put it together are we gonna have enough time um and and like I say you become incredibly invested in the investigations and and to you it feels like the most important thing in the world and you know you spend so long um investigating these things and and, you know speaking to people and, and people give you their time and they are you know so uh open with their stories and and you know until it goes out there's always this fear that you know it, something might go wrong and, and it might not you know you might not be able to put a film together um and, and for me it's more about the fact that you know in, in order to tell these stories you are so reliant on on people being open and, and telling you them and it's more for their sake that I think oh god it's so important that this story is told and it's so important that people learn from this and that these voices are heard um so yeah I think there's I think there's a sense of kind of relief when it finally goes out um that you know your job is done and that hopefully they'll be happy with it and that hopefully it will do some good and what would you say to young people who want to become investigative journalists especially in like a time where people love watching quick news and like things like TikTok has become a source where people get the news from or stories from. What would you say to someone who is thinking, right, I want to go into the field of journalism that it might take a year for a story to go out or I'm going to have to devote part of my life to getting this story out there? I think that there's always, always going to be a market for investigative journalism. I think it's an incredibly important field. But like you say, I think the way that that it will be digested and the way that it's presented will change. I know I've seen people who, who kind of do investigations on TikTok um, and you can, you know, you can upload things on Instagram, you can start your own channels, you can just write things. And I think that in a way it's great because it does make it a lot more accessible to people. You no longer have to go to a newspaper and say hi I've got this idea and I've been doing this investigation and please will you commission it even though you know I'm I'm only 19 years old and you might never have heard of me you you can just do it yourself now and you can just upload it onto social media and that can have a real life impact which I think is great the fact that it takes so long is kind of just part and parcel of investigations they aren't something that happens overnight they are something that you have to look into and that patience I mean, might not be for everyone. It's also funny me saying that you need patience because I'm actually incredibly impatient. <laughs> and I sometimes find that the sort of like length of time that these things take can be frustrating. But I suppose it's, it's just for people who want to get into it, just knowing that, you know, it might not happen overnight, but there are so many different ways now that you can create your own content you can do your own investigations and you know that can be a launch pad for for getting and getting going further and you know getting into the newspapers or getting onto tv um so I, I do genuinely believe that there are more options out there now for people than there were you know 10 years ago oh yeah definitely like you can make do your own experience like a big thing when I was like applying for like work experience placements was the experience that you had before getting the work experience like it sounds mad but you need this experience to get work experience and now you can you can start your own blog or you can start your own youtube channel podcast like even have like an instagram account that focuses on visual journalism it is so much easier and I suppose it it makes journalism a lot more accessible for people who come from a background that journalism isn't the first thing that they think to go into like especially like working class students like myself it was this whole whole thing that you know you need to know someone to get a job somewhere but now you can just you can start your own blog and be creative on your own yeah exactly which is which is great and I feel like it's it's not it's not like that anymore so much. Like I don't think it is that you the only way into journalism is like you say through someone you know, because I think that more and more actually people are seeing the value in 
different voices and different ages and, and trying to diversify and expand the media um, into something that speaks for everyone. Um, and I think that that is really important. And I think that, you know, it is, it is always probably going to be a competitive industry in the way that like now, because everyone can just film their own content, do their own stories, start their own blog. Um, you have so many bright young people who are just taking it, taking matters into their own hands and going and doing it themselves. And, you know, I look at, I mean, I've worked with, uh, with the BBC Young Reporter Competition, for example, and I look at some of the stories that these these kind of 14-year-olds are, are bringing in. And I just think, oh my God, you're so bright and smart and you like, and you know uh, what a good story is. And I think that it's it really, um, you know, it really is actually quite inspiring to see to see some of the things that that are coming through from people who are incredibly young, um, and yeah, I think that it, it does bring a lot of hype out for for the industry in the future. Yeah, definitely. And before we get on to the last order bit of the podcast, which you have come here to do, what have <laughs> you got planned for the future? Are there any areas that you're looking at at the minute that you want to cover more? in the future moving forward it's more of the same kind of things that I've that I've been doing uh, for the past couple of years I really want to focus still on issues that affect young people particularly young women um the big issues that, that are presenting themselves today in the UK um you know we're living it sounds like such a cliche because what everyone says but we're living in you know really difficult times um and and the world is changing in a way that we haven't seen before um and so it's kind of keeping keeping an eye out on on what that means for for young people in Britain and how their lives might change or be impacted by everything that's going on um and sort of you know trying to keep keep people informed and updated um as as things change so yeah and now we're going to transport you to your perfect last order, which is what you have come here to do. We've got to know loads yeah. about you and how you've become the journalist that you are today, the wonderful journalist you are. So, first of all, the first question is, you have to pick your all-time favourite place. Where would that be? So, it is this bar in New York called Pianos. Um, it's in it's in the East Village in New York, um, which is a city that I just absolutely love. Um, and I have a few friends who live over there who I've been to visit, and I've um, been there with uh, my mum a couple of times. Um, and I think I first went to this bar, God, about five years ago, maybe when I was um, when I was visiting a friend who was living out there. Um, and now, I've, whenever I've been back to New York since, which is um, a couple of times with work, a couple of times um, with um, my my family. Uh, I've always gone to this one bar. Um, and I can't even tell you why I like it so much. I think mostly because they do $5 margaritas, which is like the ch- cheapest drink that you could possibly get in New York City. Um, and they've always got live music on and it's just really fun. So yeah, that's my place. $5 margaritas sound like the dream. Yeah, that is why, I think. <laughs> I've been to New York twice but only once where I've been old enough to drink I went when I was younger and did all like the the touristy things but New York is just so massive and there's so much like things to do like I was planning on going next year I don't know how that will turn out now because like you think that you go once and that's enough, but you can just keep going and there's so many things to discover. Oh, so much. No, yeah, I think I'm, I can't even think. I think I've probably been five five or six times now, maybe. Um, but yeah, a couple of those times when we've been filming, um, filming with work, so it hasn't been quite the same experience, obviously. Um, I love it. I would love to actually live there, I think. It's my, it's one of my, I think it probably is my favourite city in the world. Um, and yeah, there's like you say, there's just so much to do and there's so many different areas and so many different things to see and places to go. I mean, to be honest now, you know, whenever I go, it's just mostly kind of like hanging out in that bar, uh, for the $5 margaritas and sort of walking around, um, walking around some of the villages or like going over to Brooklyn, um, and seeing my friends there. So yeah, I love it. And especially talking about wanting to live there, like the number of times I've been like, right, I'm just going to look at how much 
this flat costs to rent. And I think that living in a city centre is expensive. And then I look at how much it costs to live in New York and it's like... Crazy. (laughs) So you sat in pianos. Is it like a sort of dark bar or is it quite light? Has it got like a terrace? It's quite dingy. Um, So it's... looks it doesn't look like very much from the outside there's this kind of plastic um sheet in front of it um which you go through and then in the bar it's quite dimly lit there's a dance floor upstairs that plays um I mean some like there's sometimes sometimes they'll have live bands on sometimes it will be um I don't know like like I suppose I'm trying to think I just feel like I've by the time I get to the dance floor upstairs, I'm pretty drunk, so I can't actually tell you what kind of music they play. I think they were playing some, like, 90s R&B at one point, um, which I was pretty, pretty in for. And um, it's just really fun. It's always, like, really lively. There's loads of people in there. Yeah, I don't know. I just I just love it. Probably people who live in New York think it's a really, really rubbish bar. Uh, <laughs> but I've always, I've always been a fan. And so you sat in pianos. What would be your all-time favorite drink that you would transport there to have so i would say it's a spicy margarita so just yeah a margarita with a bit of chili in it i think is my my go-to drink oh see i love margaritas and i find that they're quite hard to make on your own because there's so many like different recipes like you can have a tommy's margarita i've been to sheffield and had a henderson's relish margarita Ooh, what's that? Right, I'm probably going to have to edit this out because I can never pronounce it, but Worcester, <laughs> Worcester sauce, which is like Henderson's relish. And it's it's so weird that I think they could only get away with doing it in Sheffield because that is where they make Henderson's relish. And that's like, they're obsessed with it. But like, you read all these different things that people put in margaritas and you're like, oh, really? But a spicy margarita does sound quite refreshing oh it's delicious it's so so good but yeah they're, they're really hard to make at home I've tried to do, I tried to do it loads during lockdown actually um and you sort of end up with pure tequila um or just kind of a watery limey sort of juice um which is also no good so yeah I'm a I'm only really a fan of them um if they weren't made by me in my kitchen but otherwise a great great drink and is there a place that makes them that you've had and they're like the best place to get them from no I don't know if there is I just think whenever I have one I love it and I can't really put my finger on um a specific place that's the best to be honest I actually think the ones in pianos are probably up there with with the greatest so let's just I mean let's make things easy I don't need to ship one in I can just get one from the bar there yeah (laughs) or you can always just ask for like a normal margarita and just put like a a chili in there or some chili flakes which I don't think would taste but (laughs) and so you sat in pianos you've got a spicy margarita what would be your favorite snack that you'd have alongside with it doesn't have to be one that matches it just like your all-time favorite snack you know what this is so hard um because I really really I don't think I've got a favorite snack of all time I mean all I can think of is a baked camembert but I feel like that is a a really weird thing to eat in a bar with a margarita (laughs) um and b I don't know if it's technically a snack because it's because it's quite big but I would also 100% steam through a whole one quite happily. I mean, go for it. It's like your dream last order, so you can have whatever snack you want. A baked camembert sounds like the dream. Although I do agree, like, would it taste nice with a spicy margarita? You might have to go and try it out in, like, whenever you can travel back to New York. <laughs> yeah, maybe I will. I'll have to take a baguette with me and a whole camembert and be like, sorry, can I just heat this up in the microwave quickly? Um, and in the meantime, I'll take one of your spicy margaritas. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's either, it's either that or onion rings, crisps, um, which I love. But my boyfriend says are absolutely disgusting um, whenever I come back from the corner shop with them. Um, but I think probably camembert takes, takes, the, takes the lead just slightly. And I bet you wouldn't even be the first person that's done that in that bar I bet they've probably got a story where they've had someone bring it in or bring in something even more random (laughs) so 
you sat in pianos with your spicy margarita and your baked camembert. And what would be the one song that is your all-time favourite that you'd pop on a jukebox? Like, have they got a jukebox there? Would you need to bring that over? I actually wouldn't be surprised if they have got a jukebox in there. Um, But, I don't know. They do play quite good music in general. Um... But uh, yeah, like, I, mean, I might just have to ask the bartender to let me get it on the orcs, to be honest. And my song is, is <laughs> again, just sort of, I've been trying to think about this and I'm like, what is my all-time favourite song? And I just think I have to go with the, the first one that I've landed on, which is Share, Believe. The classic. When that song comes on, wherever you are, you feel like you just need to have a good sing to it. Oh my God, you've got to. It's an absolute banger. I mean, I love Share. Um just in general, uh, turn back time would also be pretty high on the list. In fact, I'm, I've, I've got the music taste of sort of a 50 year old woman, um, which is sort of solely 80s music um, <laughs> and like really cheesy pop hits. Um, so, yeah, I think <laughs> I'm going to work on Share the Leave and probably clear the bar while I sit there eating my camembert. And then you'd just be able to get loads of spicy margaritas because there'd be no one at the bar. Exactly. The dream. So that is your perfect last order. So you're sat in Pianos, which is a bar in New York. You've got a spicy margarita, which luckily enough, they make it there. So you don't even need to bring it over in your hand luggage. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a baked camembert, which you're just going to have because you can. It's a dream last order. So no one is going to judge. It is a snack this time, no matter what people say. And you're feeling like you're going to have a party slash you want to maybe clear out the bar. Although if I was in the bar, I would definitely be up dancing. You're putting on Believe by Cher. What a dream evening. I'm going to try and replicate that next time I'm next time I'm in New York, for sure. Please do. I bet it will end up being like, I don't know, in like the New Yorker when it's like, we saw a woman eating a baked camembert in Piano's bar. <laughs> what has the city come to? <laughs> I'm Ellie Flynn. Um, if you want to watch my documentaries on BBC iPlayer, you can. They're all available there. My newest one is This Coercive Control will be available at the end of September. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. I will be leaving the links to those programmes, but you can always give it a quick Google search or other search engines are available and you'll find it on there. And I will be leaving links to a few mental health charities that you can reach out to if you've been affected by what we've been talking about in this episode. Don't forget, we love a good review or a bad review. We've not had a bad review, which is probably a good thing, but, you know, be honest. And I hope that you share this episode with your friends. Have a lovely week and join us again next week for My Last Order podcast. (laughs) 